I got to the end of the process. I walked away from the deal. Uh, I, I think I had some investors who were disappointed and I had spent probably about $20,000 of my own money. And I realized at that point, if I had a partner who understood the things that I did not understand during that process, uh, this would never have happened. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hey, real quick before we get started, first of all, I wanted to thank everybody for joining us on the show and for listening uh, to all my loyal listeners. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, continuing to listen and support the show. If you can go on to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you listen and subscribe to the show, that would be fantastic. Spread the word too. I'd love to, you know, have this reach more and more people. So if you could share it on social media or, or, or and just talk about it to other people, that would be fantastic. And the last thing is if you can go on to iTunes and give us a rating review, uh, hopefully five stars, that would be great as well. It just helps us spread the word more and it helps us get continue to get uh, really good guests on the show. We've had some fantastic guests and I just want to be able to continue to bring fantastic value to you. Go on to our Facebook page too, Pillars of Wealth Facebook page. And I'd like to hear from, from you as a listener of you know, what you're doing in business, what you've got going on, what you are maybe struggling with or uh, being successful with, and then what we can do on the show to help push you to that next level. Maybe uh, questions we can ask our guests, maybe guests that we can get on the show to talk about certain topics, certain things that are really neat, you're needing uh, some, some extra support with. So provide for us some feedback on Facebook. Um, and you can also share this out on, on social media. That would be fantastic as well. I appreciate it. I appreciate you being a, uh, being a either new listener or a loyal listener. I definitely appreciate it. And we will get started with the show. Hey, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I have today, Brian Hamrick. Brian, how are you doing today? Hey, great, Todd. How about yourself? I am doing fantastic. Well, thanks for joining me on the show. I want to, to give you a little bit of time to give our listeners a little bit about your background and then what you got going on today. Sure, sure. Um, well, first of all, thanks for having me on your Pillars of Wealth Creation podcast. Um, it's, it's an honor to be here. And um, uh, you were just on my podcast. Uh, it, it, but, you know, obviously it hasn't aired yet as we speak today, but I host a podcast called Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. Uh, I am primarily a multifamily and apartment investor. Currently, I have uh, 380 units roundabout uh, here in the Grand Rapids, Michigan area. And um, I've bought and sold over 450 units uh, also, I'm into self-storage, uh, own a self-storage facility with, with some partners, and um, uh, getting into non-performing notes as well. And I am currently the president of the Local Rental Property Owners Association, uh, for whom I host the podcast, Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. Um, well, that's great. So when did you start uh, investing in real estate? Well, kind of like you, I started investing in multifamily in 2008. 
but it goes back before that. I, I read Kia, uh, you know, Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, back in 2000. Um, actually, I didn't read it. I listened to it on uh, Nightingale Conant tapes. It was a Rich Dad <laughs> Secret set. <laughs> so I can't even say I read the book, but I did listen to it on, on cassette tape in my car um, while I was driving between Los Angeles and San Francisco. Um, but it was a real eye-opener, and I started looking into – I had a good job. Uh, I was working in the uh, movie industry in Los Angeles, California. I was a movie marketer. I used to make movie trailers and TV commercials for films. So I, I was making good income, but I didn't feel as though I was really uh, putting that income to work for me. And, uh, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad really kind of opened up my eyes to what I should be doing. So I started investing in single family homes and condos in locations outside of Los Angeles around the country. I bought uh, in New Mexico, North Carolina, and South Carolina. Um, some of them were VA foreclosures, some of them were brand new build, but I was able to buy it at a, at a pretty good price. Uh, coming from Los Angeles, everything seemed like a pretty good price. <laughs> And uh, I bought seven of those, uh, all of which I have since uh, gotten rid of. Uh, I, I, I could say I probably broke even if you count all of the tax benefits that I got from owning those properties. Sure. Um, but it, it did get the ball rolling. And in 2008, I decided, okay, multifamily, that's, uh, that's um, the way to go. And the time is now because the uh, re Great Recession had just begun. And um, I saw a real opportunity at that point. Cool. Yeah. So I want to dig in a little bit more uh, into the multifamily before we kind of get into some other questions. Uh, this multifamily, what did you start buying? Were you buying like 50 unit apartment buildings? Were you buying duplexes? Kind of what was your first uh, go into multifamily? My first multifamily was a 12 unit in Heritage Hill, which is a historic area in Grand Rapids. It's very close to downtown Grand Rapids, Michigan. Historic uh, property. It was built in 18, I, I'm not sure if it's 1860 or 1870, uh, but this property was built by a Civil War veteran. And it was kind of an undermanaged property. Uh, I, I bought it. Um, at, at first, I thought maybe I'd manage it myself, but then I found a professional third-party property management company to do that for me. And it's just been a, a great investment and it, it got the ball rolling, started buying more. And so as you expanded, were you, were you buying uh, these properties on your own? Or are you syndicating them? How, how were you expanding? Early on with the 12 unit, I was uh, buying on my own. My wife and I were, were, you know, putting up the down payment and uh, I was able to do that for a couple more. I think I, I bought a four unit that way. Um, and, you know, this was a great recession. So you could buy things with cash. I bought a four unit for $21,500 with cash. Wow. Um, I bought another four unit in Grand Rapids for $35,000. So it wasn't too hard to pick these up. You know, and I still, I was working remotely for the company that I had been doing movie trailers for in Los Angeles. So I was still making a good income at that point. But I did reach a point where I ran out of my own money and I had to bring in a partner uh, that was on a 37 unit that we bought uh, very close to where, uh, right next door to Grand Rapids, basically. It was a 37 unit, um, kind of a C minus type property. 
And uh, I, I put up half the, the down payment and my partner put up the other half. Cool. Cool. And then, and then from there, did you continue to partner with different people or? Yeah. As, as I found um, properties, you know, I had some, some relatives, some friends who would say, Hey, I, you know, I want to, I want to do this with you. So uh, I would go out, find a property, um, you know, whether it's like a five unit, a duplex here, another duplex. uh, And I, I'd present it to, to my investors and say, Hey, you want to, uh, joint venture on this so that we, we did a lot of 50 50 joint ventures they put up uh 50 i put up 50 percent. eventually i moved into uh they put up 100 percent, and i did all the work uh which in, involved you know finding the property and um and uh, putting all the pieces in place so that we could take it down and uh putting making sure we had the proper third party uh professional management in place uh, so I, I, I moved to that model pretty quickly uh, where I put in all the work, but my investors put in 100% of the, the down payment. Uh, but then around 2012, 2013, I started looking into syndication uh, because I knew I wanted to get into the larger apartment communities. And uh, to do so, it would require more than just one partner. And, and uh, I went to, uh, I took some training on raising private money and in 20, I, I want to say 2013 bought uh, our first 71 unit apartment complex. Awesome. Awesome. Well, cool. Um, thanks for explaining all that. Now, now let's talk about the self-storage and non-performing notes. You, you mentioned now you're doing, you've got a self-storage, uh, you're starting to do some non-performing notes. Uh, is there a reason for that shift? Why, why the shift? Or maybe you're still doing multifamily, but why the shift? Are you still doing multifamily, I guess? Uh, explain that to me. Yeah, good question. Um, so I, so let me, let me kind of go back uh, and finish out my history there with multifamily. So in 2013, 2014, we bought a 71 unit. Uh, in 2015, uh, actually, 2014 and 2015, I bought another 207-unit apartment complex, as well as a 96-unit apartment complex in in Grand Rapids, and uh, just uh, raise, raising millions of dollars through syndication, um, making sure that I could reach that um, uh, the returns that I wanted to get to my investors, which is typically a six to eight percent preferred return, and then a 15 percent uh, or better annualized return. Uh, I wasn't able to find those types of returns uh, here in my area. And I, when it comes to multifamily, I'm only investing in uh, the Grand Rapids, West Michigan area. Uh, So I I reached a point where those opportunities were no longer available. And I kind of sat on the fence for about three years, uh, just waiting for the market to turn and obviously it has not yet turned <laughs> so um I'm, I'm not actively looking for multifamily, but a year probably a year and a half ago uh someone came to me with a self-storage facility that they had under contract or they were negotiating on and it was an off-market deal mom and pop owned and uh, they showed me their numbers and I looked at them and I, I, I thought, wow, these, these numbers are really, really good. Um, better than numbers that I've seen for multifamily. 
and uh, went looked at the property with this person and I said all right let's make this happen so we formed a syndication and uh, took it down and we've owned it for over a year we bought it for 1.3 million dollars it's a 28,000 square foot uh, outdoor drive-up type facility with with the gates and the, the key code to get in the gate and uh, security cameras and all that there's also a, a pole barn and about a, I want to say 4,000 square foot office building on, on the lot. And just by raising rents uh, to market and, and just pushing those rents and bringing some efficiencies into the management, we've increased the value to a point where you know, we, we bought it for $1.3 million. We could sell it for well over $2 million today. And was that, did you put a lot of money into the property? No, no, it was a very well-maintained, well-run facility. Uh, we put a little bit of money into security cameras. Uh, we probably spent uh, somewhere between five to $8,000 to add security cameras, um, maintenance, you know, just routine maintenance. Uh, but we do plan on spending here. Here's, here's, uh, the upside that we're going to, we're going to take advantage of here. Uh, we are going to spend about 600, $650,000, to tear down the office building in the pole barn and put up two more storage buildings, adding 15,000 square foot more. Uh, by doing that, we'll probably, um, let's see if it's worth 2 million now, it should be worth three to $3.5 million once we have those buildings up and once we have them fully occupied. So there, there's a lot of upside, upside opportunity uh, in this property. Are you looking for more self-storage? Like yes, yes, absolutely. We are, we have some ground up construction opportunities that we're looking at. We have some land under contract uh, near the Ann Arbor, Michigan area, about three acres where we plan on doing about 48,000 square foot. It's a, it's kind of a tertiary market, but we've done a, a, um, a survey, uh, a feasibility study is what they're called to tell us, okay, here's, here's what your competition is, here's how much square footage is needed in this area within a one mile, three mile and five mile radius. Uh, here's how much supply there actually is and here's uh, how much um, uh, you should build. So um, we've got a feasibility study, we feel pretty confident about it. And probably by the time this, this uh, interview actually comes out, we'll have closed on that land and we'll, we'll be under construction. Talk, talk to us about, you know, some, a lot of listeners are probably scratching their head wondering what exactly the feasibility study is and how could they ever find someone to do it or uh, do you, do you do it and, and that. So what's the feasibility study go through that? Where'd you find Okay. It? Yeah. So a feasibility study, this is something, if you're going to do self storage, you want to look into this. This is kind of step one for us. Um, my partner who, who, is much more savvy about this area than I am. He, he typically will look at some available land and do a kind of his own desktop feasibility study, which essentially is, okay, look at how much square footage of existing storage spaces in the area uh, within a one mile radius, a three mile radius, a five mile radius, and call those facilities and find out how occupied they are. Um, if they're above 90% occupancy, or if they don't have any availability, that's a pretty good indication that the area is undersupplied when it comes to self-storage space. 
So um, you want to then uh, carry that out a little bit more. And in our case, we hired someone to do this, but they'll look at the, the average income uh, per person within those radiuses. And they'll, fact, they'll, they'll basically look at, okay, how much is available per person? How much square footage of existing self-storage space is available per person? And you can, there's kind of a rule of thumb. It's not uh, scientific, but there's a rule of thumb that you want to see somewhere between four to seven square foot of storage space per person in, in, a, in a given area. Uh, if in the case of the land that we have under contract, there's only one to two square foot per person, that tells us the area is undersupplied. Um, that plus uh, some of the other indicators such as occupancy and availability of the existing space, you know, can we rent a unit somewhere else or are they full up? Um, that tells us, okay, there's demand. There, there's demand that, that needs to be filled. And uh, this, the, the feasibility study is quite comprehensive. Uh, we paid for a, uh, another desktop study, so they didn't actually come out and drive around and, and go visit the facilities. But from their computer, they were able to call the facilities, talk to the other managers, get a sense of the area, look at all of the, the key indicators and ratios and um, population and city data and, and give us a pretty good idea. Okay, here's what is needed. Um, we think you should put in 48,000. We, we, in the case of the land that we have under contract near Ann Arbor, uh, I believe the feasibility study told us that there's about 120,000 square foot of needed self-storage space in that area. And um, we're putting in 48,000 square foot. So we, we have a pretty good expectation that we'll be able to fill that. Yeah. So you still got, I mean, you still could put in 70,000 more square feet and, and not be oversupplied. Yes. Yeah. There's room for another 70,000 square foot and it still won't be oversupplied. Um, and because it's a, a, a kind of a tertiary market close to Ann Arbor, but um, not uh, close enough that it's, it, you, uh, it's not gonna right in it. Yeah. Be in competition with, yeah, it's not right there in Ann in Arbor. Um, we're able to get the land for a really good price, and we feel like we'll be able to to really kind of control that area as far as pricing. Cool, cool. And then uh, the non-performing notes, um, you know, to, for our listeners that uh, don't know too much about those, explain the non-performing notes and how you got involved in that. So hosting a podcast, uh, you meet a lot of people and um, half the podcast that I do, Todd, I, I actually have people come to my home off, home studio and we re record in person. Well, about two years ago, I had a gentleman come in and we talked about non-performing notes. He'd been, he'd been buying non-performing notes and shared what he was doing and some examples and I, I got really intrigued. I mean, I, I had looked into purchasing commercial non-performing notes in the past, but um, uh, I, I really liked what this guy was doing. And uh, I called him up after the fact, after we had done the interview and the interview had come out. And I said, hey, I'd, I'd like to know more about what you're doing and, and invest with you. So since then, we've purchased 12 notes together. Um, and, and let me, so let me, back up and I'll kind of explain what non-performing notes are. Have you, have you talked about that on your, your show? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. I believe I had one person uh, talk a little bit about that, but it's been a long time. 
Okay, so um, basically, if you own your own prop, your own home, let's say, and you have a mortgage on your home, that means every month you're paying on your mortgage. As long as you are paying your mortgage, your mortgage or note is considered to be performing. Uh, the lender who placed that mortgage with you, uh, they consider your note to be performing. But once you stop paying, let's say for whatever reason, uh, illness, medical reasons, um, you lose a job, you stop paying on that note, uh, the lender then considers your note to be non-performing. And um, they are, they have a, a lot of reason to want to get your non-performing uh, loan or note to get performing again, because obviously, um, you know, they're losing money if you're not paying, but they also have their, their banking rules, their corporate guidelines, and um, uh, they can work with you to some extent to help you maybe restructure your loan to get it re-performing. But there's a lot of things they can't do um, because of their corporate guidelines. Uh, the other problem that they face is that the government requires that for every dollar in non-performing notes that a, a bank is holding, they have to have somewhere between six to 10 times that amount in, in uh, liquidity, in cash yep. reserves. So if you owe $100,000 on your mortgage and you stop paying that, well, that means the bank or the lender has to have somewhere between 600 to a million dollars in cash reserves to cover your non-performing note. So they have every reason to get these notes off their books and they will sell them for a discount. Um, you know, typically somewhere between 35 to 65% of the unpaid balance, uh, which can be anywhere from you know, 25 to, to 60% of the actual cash value, um, depending on, uh, on how, you know, what, what the, the status of the note is. But um, uh, hedge funds will buy these from banks in bulk. Uh, other uh, investors will buy these from, from banks, either as one-offs, you know, one at a time, or buy them in pools, uh, where you buy them in, in, a, in a group. Uh, and um, that's what my partner and I are doing. We've been buying some of these, uh, mostly one-offs, uh, at uh, typically somewhere in that 40 to 60% of the unpaid balance. And um, we're able to, we have more, we have more flexibility when it comes to working with the, the um, distressed homeowner. And our goal is to keep them in their home. So uh, my partner who, who does uh, all of the phone calls and, and working with the, the lenders and the, the distressed homeowners, he, could, he will call them up and he'll often say, well, so, you know, let's talk, I bought your loan. Uh, I am now the one who you're gonna be making your monthly payments to. Would you like to stay in your home? And a lot of times that's the first time that these homeowners have even heard that from a lender because lenders are, are bound by very strict guidelines as to what they can say and what they can't say. But once uh, a private corporate investor, uh, which would be like an LLC, purchases these notes, they're no longer bound by some of the corporate guidelines. I mean, there's still rules they have to follow, but they have more flexibility. So my partner, Gene, can say, would you like to stay in your home? And let's talk about what needs to happen in order for that to, be, to become a reality. Um, 
of the 12 notes that we've bought, four or five of them we've gotten to be reperforming, which means we've restructured the note in order to, to get the, um, the homeowner to stay in the home. Um, probably four of them we've gone through the foreclosure process because quite often people will will not come to the table or not return phone calls or say they're going to do something and then not do it, uh, at, at which point we'll go through the foreclosure process. But, uh, you know, if the, the, the profit is probably best if you can get that note to be restructured and keep that homeowner in the home because you don't have to go through the foreclosure process. You can start get, making that monthly income. Uh, if you bought a note that uh, the unpaid balance is $100,000, let's say, and they're paying 8% interest on that, but you bought that note for $50,000. Well, if they start paying that 8% interest to you who paid half of the unpaid balance, that's actually 16% return um, that you're making. And if you can get them to refinance that loan after seasoning the note for a period of time, if they can refinance, well, they're gonna pay you that $100,000 if you only paid $50,000 for that $100,000 note, when they refinance and that $100,000 is paid off, well, you just made 100% profit on your, your investment. Um, does that make sense? Am I? Yeah, well, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that, no, that makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you explaining that because that's one of the questions that I had is, well, if I buy this thing for $50, now do they only owe me $50? But they actually owe you the original note. Of course, unless you negotiate with that, but uh, you're usually probably negotiating terms, not the loan amount. Yeah, you're negotiating terms. The unpaid balance remains the same. Mm -hmm. So if they owed $100,000 and you bought that note for $50,000, well, they still owe $100,000. And, um, it, you know, if they, if they um, start paying interest, they're going to pay interest on that $100,000, not on the 50 that you paid for it. Um, if you foreclose on the property, well, then you have the expense of foreclosing. Mm -hmm. And the actual cash value of that home might be, say, $150,000. Yep. So uh, you could actually make a bigger, a better profit that way. But um, you know, it, in our case, we, we try to work with the homeowner uh, when as you, best we can. You also have a little more risk that way too. I mean, there can be a lot of damages to the property and, you know, if it's foreclosed and the market goes down um, at that time, you know, there's just a lot of different risk to foreclosing on somebody. Yes. The, the risk goes up substantially when you get into the foreclosure situation, because we do, we have had two incidents, uh, one where um, we got into the home uh, the, the owner was not living there. They had uh, been renting it out and the renters moved and the homeowner basically, uh, or the, the person who owned the property had abandoned it. Uh, we got in and found uh, some pretty serious structural damage and foundation damage. So uh, we, we lost a little bit of money on that particular note. Um, another note, we took possession of the property right in the middle of winter um, in February when uh, we had like record cold uh, temperatures. And uh, like the day before the day that we actually took possession of the, the property, the, the pipes froze. Mm -hmm. um, there was substantial damage to the property. So yeah, uh, yeah you're right. There is, there is risk uh, when you go through the foreclosure process. So you mitigate that risk by trying to keep the homeowner in the home. Yep. 
Um, how do you go about finding a, a distressed note? Well, it's, it's contacts. You know, I, I work with strategic partners. So when it comes to the self-storage or the notes, um, I'm working with people who are very good at what they do and know how to know how to find the, the deals, know how to find the notes, know how to talk the talk with the, the lenders and the homeowners. Um, my part is bringing in the money, but I will tell you that as far as finding the notes, uh, my partner has spent the past uh, six years building his network, uh, both lenders, hedge fund uh, operators, uh, private corporate investors who, who um, you know, tend to pick up large pools that he can then pick off what, what uh, looks good to him. Uh, so it's really, he's, he's built his network. He's, he's taken the training. He goes to, to all, all the, uh, the note conferences around the country. And, um, you know, he's pretty well known in that world. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, so a lot of, so same way you have success in a lot of other, uh, areas is, is it's all about networking, building relationships with the right people. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just getting the experience. You know, having getting the experience and kind of understanding how things work. So, so your partnership, I mean, essentially, they're uh, your partner's doing a lot of the uh, when the self storage, they're doing a lot of that kind of hands on, and same thing with the uh, the note. And you're probably providing some support, but one of your big assets that you're bringing to the table is being able to actually execute on the transactions by bringing the money to the table. Yes. Yeah. So what I bring is kind of like the big picture um, uh, vision, which is, all right, we can, we can scale this uh, much larger. Let's, you know, let's break. I, I, I've syndicated four times. Um, I'm in the process of doing my fifth syndication right now. Uh, and um I know how to get that done. I know how to put together the marketing and the message and the story and, and tell that story in such a way that, that investors, uh, typically accredited investors, want to invest with us. Yep. And, and I've spent the past couple of years looking for the right story. And when it comes to self-storage and when it comes to notes, uh, I feel like I found the, the right story. But, but then I bring the money into the, the deals, make sure we can get things done. And um, that's what I bring to the equation. My partners bring, bring their expertise, their knowledge uh, when it comes to specifically managing those different types of asset classes. Hey, I'm super excited to announce the North Star Real Estate Conference that uh, I am putting together along with a few other friends. And we are expecting to have a great crowd there. This is going to be September 20th and 21st in Minneapolis in the Twin Cities area. And hey, it'll still be warm. And we're going to have a ton of great speakers there. We're going to have uh, some motivational speakers. We're expecting to have uh, speakers talking about a lot of different commercial real estate topics, multifamily and commercial real estate. So we want you there. We would love to have uh, a great crowd there. We would love to have you there. And the cool thing with this conference is all the profits are going to 
uh, benefit charity. They're going to benefit Junior Achievement specifically, who they uh, serve underserved uh, youth and they, they bring financial education to them. They not only teach financial education, but they teach the, the kids how to be entrepreneurs, how to be business leaders, and how to really do fantastic things after they're out of school and, and moving on. So that's who we're uh, going to be benefiting. We're going to also have a charity gala. It's going to be a fun event, and I'd love to have you attend. So again, it's called the North Star Real Estate Conference. Check it out. We've got uh, links that we'll put on the show notes. Uh, we would love to have you there. We'd love to have you attend. Speaker lineup is coming, and uh, that'll be announced uh, shortly. We do have a few speakers already uh, lined up, so you'll be able to see that. We've got Trevor McGregor will be our keynote speaker. He's a master platinum coach. So you're going to love this event. We are going to just have a ton of fun and learn a bunch and also benefit a great organization as well. I will see you there. Check out our show notes for the links. Let's talk about finding partners uh, for a little bit and building your teams. What are some strategies you've used to be able to find these, the right partners and, and having the right people in place to make your business successful? Because I think a lot of people do struggle with that. A lot of people want, they go, man, I just, I wish I had a partner like that. Um, cause I can't do everything or so how, what, what, what's been some success for you to finding the right partners and then also just finding the right, uh, people, the team members in place to be successful. Yeah, that's, that's such a good question. And, and I don't have one specific answer, but I'll give you three examples. Um, when I decided I wanted to scale up from just buying the smaller multifamilies, to the larger apartment complexes, my, it became apparent to me pretty quickly that I needed a partner who understood the large apartment complexes. And I went out and I looked at the apartments that I wanted, the types of apartments that I wanted to own. And I said, who is managing those properties? Hmm. Uh, in, in that case, it was a, a guy named Marty Green who owned a property management company called Green Property Management. And I had, I had met Marty before, but um, I brought him in to, and his company to manage the first 71 unit property that, that I said that, that we had purchased. And from there, we struck up a partnership to buy the 207 unit apartment complex together, as well as another 96 unit apartment complex. So it was really just... In that case, I deliberately went out and looked for someone who had expertise owning and managing the types of property that I wanted to buy, and that was large apartment complexes. Uh, in the other two cases, with the self-storage and the non-performing notes, it wasn't deliberate on my part. Um, I think what helped, and maybe you can attest to this, Todd, uh, is having a podcast. Um, you know, I, I certainly don't get paid anything. Maybe I make a little bit of money from, from some promotions on the podcast, but what I've benefited from, from hosting a podcast is the network that I've built and the people who will come to me and show me deals that they, that they want to do. And with the self storage, 
Um, I don't know how many people uh, my partner went to before he came to me, but when he showed me this deal and I saw it and I recognized immediately, hey, this is this is something I want to be part of. Um, we were able to take it down pretty quickly and efficiently. Uh, and um, that was just because he knew me through hosting the podcast. Yep. Uh, with my partner, Gene, who I'm doing notes with, uh, a same thing. He was a guest on the podcast. I really responded to what he was doing and the way he was, he was investing and, and helping homeowners stay in their home. And I, uh, I, I called him up afterward and said, let's do, let's do some business together. So it's a little different in all three situations, but uh, it, it's really just, you know, some of it is deliberate knowing who can help you, who you want to partner with. And, and some of it is just building your network and seeing what, what may happen. Yeah, I mean, in both cases, you're you're building your network. One one case, you deliberately called the the person who was doing what, kind of what you wanted to do. Uh, the other is, I mean, through your podcast, which those who don't have a podcast still can build their their network and relationships through going to meetings and conferences and um, just being a part of the industry. I mean, if 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 you're not if you're not talking to and being surrounded by people that are in the industry, you can't expect to really find any partners. Uh, it's going to be very challenging, I guess, to find partners, especially ones that have experience. Yeah, absolutely. As, as, as far as real estate investors, you know, we don't exist in a vacuum. There's all kinds of people out there who can, who, if we're open to partnering, uh, we can just exponentially grow our, our business. I, I'm curious, Todd, with your podcast. I mean, have you found opportunities uh, like the ones I mentioned? Um, yeah, you def definitely have, have had opportunities uh, come to me. You know, some are, some are great potential, some, you know, not so much. You, you have to weed through them. And, and also it's really important. I think one thing that I've uh, really made valuable and it, to me is making sure the partners are the right people. Um, and not necessarily are they bad people, uh, but is it somebody that I think, okay, I would like to do business with them and continue to do business with them and grow with them and do our personalities kind of mesh together. Um, and do they have different skill sets than me as well? So, so that's one thing that's been uh, something that I try to make sure works well with, with personalities. And, um, again, not saying they're necessarily a bad person to do business with, or they're a bad person. It's just the relationship doesn't maybe fit. Yeah. Does, does it come down to personality for you? I mean, what are the things you look for? Cause, cause I know personality is important and I've certainly met people who, um, seem interesting, but I can tell that we would just not get along very well. Yeah, right. For for me, I I want to do business with somebody I feel like I could hang out with, you know. And that might sound, I don't know, weird, but uh, I just I I want to be able to enjoy doing business with people. I I don't want to do business just to make money. Um, so if I'm going to actually enjoy doing business with you, that's that has some potential there. Um, of course, I want you to have you know, be ethical and honest and all that kind of stuff. That's extremely important. Um, and then also, do you have different skill sets 
that you bring something to the table versus having the exact same skill sets as, as I have. If you've got the exact same skill sets, well, then our partnership probably isn't a really lasting partnership. Now, could we get into one deal together and, um, you know, make it a, a buy the deal type of thing? Sure. But if we're going to be buying, you know, doing a note buying and, and buying uh, notes and continuing to do that or buying self-storage and continuing to do that together and kind of building that business, you've got to have those things in place. Of course, yeah. always, always you have to have the ethical part in place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The ethical part. I'd add two things. Um, one would be just the, you know, the experience and the skill to back up what they're promising. Yep, absolutely. If, if they say they can do something, um, I want to see that proved out. Yep. Uh, and, and then the other thing is just uh, hunger. You know, are they hungry enough? Uh, are, you know, do they want it bad enough that when things get tough, they're going to stick it out because the last thing you want to do is be, be in a partnership with someone who's not going to stick it out. Yeah, def definitely. Good point there. Um, yeah. You know, everybody's different. So you just, in my opinion, you've got to be careful who you do business with and, and uh, you know, it's sometimes it doesn't work and, it, and it's not nothing against that person. It just doesn't work out uh, that, that relationship should, should be uh, formed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's funny. Cause you shouldn't treat it like a marriage. Like you're going to be with this person forever on every investment you do for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, I believe in a in kind of a, a project by project or syndication by syndication partnership. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's a fluctuating partnership, um, you know, depending on what the asset class is and who brings value to the partnership structure. Yep. No, I, I definitely agree with that. Well, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, your business and how <clears throat> some, some key fundamentals to operating your, your business successfully, because what, one thing that the show I try to kind of press upon people is that, a lot of people in real estate think of it as being a transactional business, right? We we just got to, we got to buy an apartment building. We got to buy a house. We got to whatever. And they don't think of it as a business as operating a business. And, and so that's kind of what this show is all about is to try to go, Hey, you know, we're not just real estate buyers. We are real estate business owners. Real estate is our product. Um, so what's some advice you would give to our listeners about successfully operating a business? Maybe three things. Wow. Okay. Well, so I'm different in, in some respects from, uh, people who, who own large apartment communities in, in that I have built a team, but I do not have any employees. So I'm kind. I'm really just a, a, a one-man uh, business. Uh, Hamrick Investment Group is the name of my company, and it's basically just me. Uh, but I have built a team, and that team consists of many different uh, companies and uh, individuals. Uh, one of those individuals is my bookkeeper, who pays all my bills oversees uh, a lot of my, the finances on my properties. Um, I have a third party property management company that's actually owned by my partner, Marty Green, 
and I work with them uh, quite a bit to, to make sure that our properties are healthy and running the way they should. Um, I have a, a loan broker who I can call and get information from. I have brokers that I work with, um, a CPA who does all the taxes on my properties. So without having employees, I feel like I do have a team and I try to get that team to work directly with each other as much as possible. Um, my feeling as a, as a business owner is that I don't want to be the bottleneck or the person stuck between the conversations that need to be happening. I want the different parties to be able to communicate directly with each other. So I've gone to great lengths to make sure that all my different team members, and, and also uh, I forgot my insurance agent uh, who I rely on quite a bit. I want them all to be able to communicate directly with each other. So I'm not the, the one in between running back and forth, trying to figure out what everybody needs. Um, yeah, you know, I think weekly, definitely monthly reviews of all the finances on the properties, looking at the profit and loss statements, the rent rolls, the delinquency reports, the unit vacancy reports. That is something that, that um, uh, I need to do because no matter how much I trust my team, uh, the numbers tell the, the story. So you can always look at the numbers and say, you know what? Uh, our delinquencies or tenants who aren't paying their rents are too high. Uh, what's going on this month? Why aren't we on top of that? So um, definitely staying on top of the finances. And I know you asked for three, but I'm, I'm blanking on what the third one might be. That's all right. We'll move on. <laughs> yeah, uh, it'll come to me. Yeah, it'll come to you. That's all right. So, so next uh, question, what's a big mistake that you've made uh, or, or just a mistake that you want to talk about and how have you learned from that? Um, big mistake and how have I learned from it? Um, I think early on, it, the first syndication I, I tried to do, I ended up uh, not uh, going through with that deal. Uh, there was just too many problems that kind of came up at the last minute and I had backed out. But the mistake I made on that was, was um, bringing my investors in too early, um, getting them excited about this property, getting their, um, you know, some of their financial information uh, in place with the lender and the broker to make sure that we could follow through on the, uh, the sale. And, and not having the, the team and the experience in place to know that I was going down the wrong road. Uh, so at the end, at the end of this process, uh, and I had tried to, to take down this apartment complex myself. This was a, this was over a hundred units here in the Grand Rapids area. Uh, this was early on. It was going to be the first syndication I did and I did not have a partner. And, um, uh, I got to the end of the process. I walked away from the deal uh, I, I think I had some investors who were disappointed and I had spent probably about $20,000 of my own money uh, to, to get to the point where I, I had gotten. And I realized at that point, if I had a partner who understood the things that I did not understand during that process, uh, this would never have happened. And that's why I went out and I found uh, a partner, Marty Green, to... Um, uh, be my strategic partner when it came to investing in apartments. 
Yeah, no, and and the so the partnership aspect is within or the team aspect, however you want to position yourself, but that's that's really important, um, especially when you're first starting. I think there's just so many different aspects. Multifamily is people say, well, you can buy. It takes the same time to buy a single family than a multifamily. Well, that maybe that's true. Same effort. Maybe that's true, but there's just so many different things in a multifamily, so many things you need to be careful about. Um, and there's a lot more money at stake, and, and it's investor money oftentimes. So there's just so much more, in my opinion, uh, that you need to be aware of, and that partners can really help avoid a lot of those mistakes. Like you said, you probably wouldn't have went down that road or nearly as far and wouldn't have lost the money, wouldn't have got your investors excited had you had the right partner in place on that deal. Um, in the first yeah, ab- absolutely. And, and I realized, because I had, ha- I had uh, several smaller multifamily properties at that point. And um, I figured, okay, it's, it's not that far of a leap to go up to a larger apartment complex. But it was. It was. And I should have had the right people in place with me. And those were different people than who would help me build the, the smaller multifamily portfolio. Yep. Um, yep. So there was a difference in the type of person that I needed uh, by my side. Yep. Yeah, I think that's definitely a ton of value right there that you uh, just talked about. So um, take us through the mind shift that you had. You were an employee. Um, how, you know, what was that mind shift like of, of becoming an investor? Was there any like aha moments or what, what was it? Wow. Um, I never felt like an employee. Um, I had some great, I, I had great jobs. I mean, I loved the jobs that I had. I worked for great companies. Um, I did not feel like an employee and that I was dependent on my employer. Uh, I knew that if, if they fired me or if I got let go, I could go find another job and, and, and be just as, as fine. Um, but the mind shift was really, I was, well, first of all, it was, it was just a great sense of freedom and relief to not be bound to a certain schedule uh, or uh, have to take phone calls and, and, and do, yeah. I was, so I'm, I'm living in Michigan and I was working for a company in California. There was a three hour time difference. So I wouldn't start working until say 12 o'clock in the afternoon, but I'd be working until nine or 10 o'clock at night. Uh, so just that, that freedom of not having to work so late uh, was, was key. Uh, there, there's definitely, uh, you're a different person when you're an entrepreneur or a full-time real estate investor. Uh, I think you're busier. I'm certainly busier than I ever was when I had a job, but I also feel like, I can do what, do it on my own schedule and do it on my own terms, which is a lot better. And I think some people have a problem with that because they're not as self-motivated as you need to be to be an entrepreneur or a real estate investor. Um, and maybe they, they end up being frustrated because they don't know how to direct their time and direct their own efforts. They're used to having an employer tell them how to direct those efforts. But I, I love it. I love having that freedom in, in, of choice and you know, being able to determine what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. 
So I just came up with your third tip for operating a business successfully, and that was you must be self-motivated. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You have to be self-motivated. You, you won't have a boss sitting there saying, good job. I really like the way you handled that or, yeah. or directing you on how to do it better. Yeah. Um, you're on your own. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, we knew it. I knew it would come out. You just, we just needed to fill in the blanks there. So we got to take care of it. Thank you. You can edit that. So that <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. So I, I asked you uh, some, you know, uh, how to operate a business successfully. I want to know then what are some factors for your success? What do you do um, to make sure you're being successful um, on a personal level? At a personal business level, yeah. On a personal business level? Personal and business level, yeah. What are you doing uh, for yourself to make sure you're successful? Um, well, on a business level, you know, I stay involved. I, I network. I try to give back. And I, and I do that through, um, like currently I'm the president of the Rental Property Owners Association. Um, I sit on multiple committees, the, the education and um uh, conference committee every year we have a, a huge conference uh, it's the largest conference in the midwest for real estate investors uh right here in grand rapids michigan so i'm on that committee um i'm on the education committee i teach a class for the rpoa um, and these are all things that you know i don't get paid for i mean anybody who is a volunteer for the rpoa is doing it for for other reasons but you're giving back you're helping other investors learn uh learn what you've learned, uh, you know, sharing those experiences and, and, and then also networking with some really great people. So uh, from a business perspective, I consider that to be one of the greatest ways. And, and that extends to the podcast to the rental property owner and real estate investor podcast that I host. Um, uh, we get a little bit of sponsorship income from that, but it's, it's really more of a kind of a passion and hobby for me than anything else. Uh, what else do I do for, for business. Um, you know, I do a lot of lunches, a lot of coffees with people. Um, I'm very, I'm very available for people to call me or, or try to get in touch with me. I try to get back to people as soon as possible. Um, I try to answer any questions that people might have. Um, and I get a lot of questions from, uh, kind of new investors, new or, um, somewhat new investors who are looking to, to take that next step and get to the next level. From a personal standpoint, um, I have I have two kids and, and my wife, and I try to do as much with my family as possible. Uh, my mornings, <laughs> my day my day is kind of uh, scrunched between getting my kids off to school and then when my kids home, come home from school. So I try to get everything accomplished uh, between 10 a.m. and uh, 3 p.m. during the day, uh, with a little bit of work in the evenings, but. Uh, uh, I try to keep it as sane as possible, and um, I think I'm doing a good job. Your schedule sounds very much like mine. I get my kids on the bus every morning. I get my, you know, I, they they come home, and you know that uh, I'm home for them. So, yeah, sounds sounds a lot like my schedule. Uh, <laughs> you do a little bit of work in the morning, do a little bit of work uh, in the evening after they go to bed. So, yeah, but but as you, I think we both know that you're always working. You're always on because because <laughs> even if you're driving your kids to school, you might be taking a phone call. Yeah. You might be thinking of what you need to say to to this person or how you need to respond to this email. So. Uh, 
we're always working, but uh, we may not physically be in front of our, our desk. <laughs> very good. Very good point. Um, okay. A couple more questions before we wrap up. Uh, you've already mentioned a book, but what's a, what's a favorite book uh, that you can recommend to our listeners? Um, I, I just met a guy. Um, I, I joined uh, Rod Cleef's multifamily boardroom. Okay. And the networking in that room is incredible. I met a guy named Brian Murray, uh, who wrote the book, Crushing It in Apartments and Commercial Real Estate. So he just sent me this book. So I'm really looking forward to reading it. So I'll give it, give it a plug on your show. Um, and and the, the one I really recommend that, that really started me off was uh, uh, um, Buying and Selling Apartments by Steve Burgess. That's one of my favorites, and as well as Emerging Markets by Dave, David Lindahl. Cool, cool. All and, and then, and then uh, you know, just, just for pleasure, I love Jack Reacher books, and I love Harry Bosch books, the Michael Conley, Harry Bosch series. Awesome. Awesome. Always good to hear what people are uh, liking to read. Um, so, so last question I have, this is one I, I ask all my guests and I don't prep them for it typically. So, uh, we'll see what comes out. Uh, yeah, but by the way, I, I haven't really been prepped for any of your questions. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't prep any, but I like that because I don't want you to be, uh, pre-recorded, you know, basically. So yeah, I, I didn't rehearse any answers, but <laughs> I appreciate that. I like the spontaneity of it. Yeah. So, uh, last question is what are your three pillars of wealth creation? Three pillars of wealth creation. Um, well, wow. Okay. That's, that's a good question. Um, I would say creating cash flow of which I, I would say that I probably, what I used to make in my job, I'm probably about halfway there with the cash flow that I receive each year from my properties. So I'm, building that cash flow uh, every year, <clears throat> excuse me, whether it be through the, you know, the self storage that we're doing, uh, asset managing my existing multifamily to, to get it to perform better. Uh, it's all about creating that cash flow that I'm living off of. Um, then there is building the long-term uh, assets and, and the long-term legacy wealth which is, which would include um, acquiring new properties. Right now, we're looking at uh, the self-storage, building self-storage. So those will be long-term holds, uh, hopefully, uh, over a period of time. Uh, and then there's, there's the, the paydays. And by paydays, I mean things like when I refinance a property and I'm able to pull cash out. Uh, uh, it's, I, I'm, a net seller at the moment. So I've sold a couple properties. Uh, that's a nice payday. The notes themselves, uh, uh, working on the notes, uh, that to me is a payday because we get some pretty nice returns off of that, but it's not long-term returns. Unless we, unless in some cases we hold on to those notes and continue to collect payments, um, uh, in most cases we're disposing of those notes and taking the profit and creating that velocity of money by rolling that profit back into more notes. Um, and that's creating paydays for me 
but it, at the moment, it's not creating the long-term wealth. And, and um, I hope to turn it into that at some point, but currently it's, it's more of a payday. So I guess um, the cash flow, the um, long-term legacy wealth and, and, and asset uh, appreciation, and then the paydays. Perfect. Great answer. Um, so last thing is our listeners, I'm sure, want to uh, hear your podcast, get in touch with you. What, where can they find you? So you can find me by going to my website, which is higinvestor.com. That's H-I-G investor, I-N-V-E-S-T-O-R.com. Uh, you can get all my contact information there. My email is brian at higinvestor.com. That's B-R-I-A-N at H-I-G investor.com. And the podcast that I host is the Rental Property Owner and Real Estate Investor Podcast. And you can find it anywhere on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts. Cool. Well, Brian, appreciate you spending a, a lot of time with us and uh, tons of value here. So I appreciate it and uh, have a good rest of the day. Yeah, thank you, Todd. I, I really enjoyed being on your show. This was a lot of fun. Hey, special thanks to Brian Hamrick for joining us on the show. Appreciate his time and a ton of value that he was able to add to us. Um, and just a couple of key things I took from this episode. First of all, uh, he talks about uh, reviewing your key financials often, making sure you understand you know, what's going on inside of your business. The key financials are obviously key, and you want to make sure you're staying up to date with those. The other thing he talked about, and, and we hear this one over and over, is make sure you build a team. Uh, he talks about finding partners by asking who is doing what that what you want to do. So finding others that are kind of in that same, uh, in the same spot as you are doing what you want to be doing and be able to partner with them. And the last thing he talks about is just being able to stay self-motivated and, and being an entrepreneur can be a fairly lonely business. Um, a lot of times we're kind of in it, in it ourselves. We might have team members, we might have partners, but we still have to stay uh, very much self-motivated and I talk about that quite a bit with uh, those who I am mentoring about staying self-motivated also by uh, finding other people that uh, can help kind of hold your feet to the fire. Uh, extremely important with that as well. So again, appreciate Brian joining us on the show and the time he was able to spend with us. I hope you took at least uh, one thing from this episode, write that down and, and really focus on it this week and make sure it becomes a part of your daily or a weekly routine and something that can really push you forward uh, in the end and get you to where you want to be. I'm Todd Dexarmer. I'm signing out. Make every day a Saturday. Hey, thanks for listening to the show. A couple things before we go again, go on to our Facebook page, Pillars of Wealth. We'd love to have you on there. Go on to iTunes, give us a rating and review and subscribe to the show. Also, um, you know, don't forget, reach out to me if you want any help with uh, potentially growing your business and reach out to John Styles to help you buy or sell real estate. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. Have a fantastic the rest of the day. And as I say, make every day a Saturday.